I didn't know that my script had been taken off the shelf, massively rewritten, and was about to be made. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And if you're listening to this episode, it's because you made it to 2019. Mazel tov. Congratulations. I don't take it for granted because of what's going on in the world. I have always treasured Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I'm so excited to sit down with the host of it, Peter Sagal, who spoke to me in his hotel room before he went to his sold-out run at Carnegie Hall, as you do. We also talked about him writing for film. I don't know if anyone has heard of Dirty Dancing. He wrote the sequel. We spoke about that, his career in theater, and his latest book. I highly, highly encourage you to check out The Incomplete Book of Running. I fond of it for many reasons. One, he talks about burnout and, you know, having to start over. And I like anyone who's actually had to live. And uh, Peter talks about his own experience within that. And secondly, he encourages people to run without headphones on. And the fact that he's not shilling his living and saying, you must listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You must listen to the radio or podcast, but actually recommending silence. It's like when, uh, you know, a salesperson says, nah, you don't look so great in that outfit, or you don't need that, or you can get that for cheaper. That's even better, because then it's not really about like, oh, wait, am I, I didn't realize that I had that problem. I didn't realize that I had, I don't, I don't have elephant just at the calves, but it wouldn't be nice for them to point that out if I did. You know what would be nice? To actually get to listen to Peter. So here's my interview with Peter Segal. I'm so happy to be able to be with Peter Sagal. I know you've won a lot of awards. How does it feel winning the Employee of the Month award? I haven't won that many awards, so I'm not jaded yet. So this okay. is an absolute thrill. I mean, everybody assumes I've won awards because it's like, well, you know, presumably he's been around long enough. He's a white man. He would have won some awards, but yeah. I somehow have missed out. We won a Peabody, which was nice, and I got the Kurt Vonnegut Humor Award. Yes! And that was exciting because I was a big Kurt Vonnegut fan. And not only that, but I was the first person to actually show up and get it in person. So, oh, because they had given it to, of all people. Was he there? No, he's long dead, I know, sadly. But this this was his know, memorial. I didn't know when yeah, no, he got the award. No, this, this was invented after his death in the Kurt Vonnegut uh, Library. That's why it's called the, uh, the yes. Kurt Vonnegut Mom, Award. Yeah, and they, but the best part of it is the award itself is a engraving of this famous drawing that Kurt Vonnegut did for the novel Breakfast of Champions. Have you ever read it? Remember this book? Yes. He's, he illustrated it. And they call it the Vonnegut Asterisk because that's what it looks like. But you know, and I know, what it really is. It's an asshole. I mean, in the book, he like says, this is an asshole, and he draws it, and it looks something like an irregular asterisk. And they call it the asterisk. I'm like, come on. Who are you trying to fool? So so (laughs) my award is basically just a beautiful, wooden, engraved asshole, and I love it. Taint. That's amazing. Um, No, wait a minute. Is that the taint or isn't, isn't, no, isn't I think the, taint, the taint is inside? I thought the taint was the perineum. You are correct. Yeah. You are correct because yeah. it's a very sensitive area for yeah. some people. Yes, exactly. I'm Not so glad we've I'm so glad we've <laughs> we we've discussed this. Anyway, so but to get back to your original point, I'm thrilled, I'm honored, I look forward to having my name for the month on the wall at the slate. Uh, break room. When you were in college, yes. Cambridge, you were a uh, grocer. You bagged groceries. I did. Yeah, you have done your research. I appreciate that. Did was Julia Child ever a, a customer? Julia? The, the legend of my store, and when I say my store, Evergreen? I mean the, no Evergood Close, the Evergood Market. Evergreen. My grandfather Jacob Skolnick bought the Evergood Market in Cambridge on Mass Ave in 1949. And he worked there literally till he died. They, he left from the store to the hospital where he died. He loved that store. And then it was taken over by my uncle, Ted Skolnick, who sold 
sold it in 1999. And so 50 years it was in my family. And the legend was that Julia Child used to come in and occasionally buy things, although I myself never saw her. But we certainly bragged about it. Yeah, that's what you should do. Yes. Did they have Boston accents? Sort of. My my grandfather died when I was so young that I don't really remember his speaking voice. And he had been born in in Russia and came over as a child. So if he had an accent... Minsk, yeah, uh, somewhere in the pale of settlement. I remember, I asked him about it once. He either said it was a part of Russia that's now Poland or a part of Poland that's now Russia. I don't remember. But my mother and uncle, who were both still with us, have, have thick Boston accents. I Boston accents. <laughs> but, you know, my uncle has ideas. They take ours away from places where they belong and they put them on places they don't. And I love it. I know that you wrote for Hasty Pudding, and did you start writing plays in high school? I, I was a big theater nerd in high school. I acted in all the plays. As I recently came up with and realized it was true, one of the reasons I liked the theater and acting in plays was because I was a pretty awkward kid, and acting in plays was a way of, was a way of being in front of people with instructions. You know, I didn't have to think about what I should say because it was all written down. So I kind of enjoyed that. But I didn't start writing plays, even though I called myself a playwright because I thought I should be one. So I just said that I was one. But I was afraid if I did it, I'd fail. So if I didn't do it, I wouldn't fail. So I just talked about doing it. Got it. But with the exception of some weird little things I did in school when I was growing up, the first play that I wrote that got a real production was The Hasty Pudding Show at Harvard. And that was really sort of seminal because I had acted in the pudding play. And then this is this big, and most people know this, right? It's this enormous drag musical, extraordinarily sexist and awful, but it's been going on for a long time, so it gets a kind of tradition. It's at Harvard. It's a Harvard thing. It's a Harvard (laughs) thing. And it was great fun, and it's this big sort of drag comedy. Where celebrities come they, they give an award to celebrities who come and they get a lot of publicity. There's a woman of the year. The year I wrote it, it was Cher. Oh, my God. She was great. Well, I'm not surprised. She I'm was like, awesome. I don't love Twitter right now for the obvious reasons. Yes. It's very sad, except for... She's amazing. <laughs> She's and here's the thing that people don't know about Cher is she is a short woman. Oh, she is shorter than I am. And you never really notice that because she was always like with the enormous headpieces whenever yes. she showed up. But she is a tiny person. And uh, it was really nice to meet her. She was great. And the man of the year, the year I wrote it, was Sylvester Stallone. And this was during the 80s, post-Rocky, when everybody had sort of forgotten about how lovely Rocky was. And he was making these horrible Rambo movies. And he was quite a source of controversy because people thought that he was uh, essentially a fascist. And uh, particularly they were upset because of Rambo. That movie was both racist, revisionist. And terrible. I think if you were to go back, it probably wouldn't even hold up to that. <laughs> it's. It, I actually watched. It's incredibly bad. I mean, you have no idea how bad this movie is. And so it was. If it was bad then. I can't even so we had. I remember we had this big opening. We had this. Oh God, we had this opening at the Hasty Pudding Show, and you know, it was, it's Harvard, so everybody was in their tuxes, and it was like you know there was champagne, and everybody was in tuxes. And that's and, just freshman year, like first day of class, they have their tuxes. I don't know if this is still true. It's been a long time, but you have to have a tux if you're a Harvard student. So there was a store in Cambridge, I it might still be there, that specialized in selling cheap used tuxedos for all the Harvard students to wear to these. We were such dorks, but that's what you did. And so we were all wearing our tuxedos, and they had these protesters outside in the freezing rain in February. It was like the French Revolution. It was great. Wow. Yeah. Um, and is that what inspired you to be a comedy writer? Well, I never thought, I, know, I never writer, thought I'd be a comedy funny. writer. I, what I, it did inspire me. In that I said, oh, wow, this is so much more fun to be in the back of the theater watching the people do my stuff as opposed to being on stage and trying to do it myself. So that's when I determined that I really wanted to be a writer as opposed to a performer or even a director, which I had been doing for a long time in college. So uh, that experience of being in the back and watching actors do stuff and people enjoying it was like, okay, I'll be a playwright. Although it took me a while to get around to it. 
And so were you acting at the same time? Yeah, I, my whole thing, I was a I, what we called a drama jock back in the 80s. I was a big actor in, in high That's school. That's what heterosexual males call themselves. Yes, yes, <laughs> so well... Maybe, remind themselves exactly. that they really are much more. Much yes, I know. It's a way. It's a way of. It's, it's a, a way of, It's a way of, uh, of asserting a masculinity that is perhaps not there, but that's what I did and loved the theater and that's what I thought I'd do in high school and then I got to college and I started directing plays and then I started eventually writing them and uh, that's what I ended up deciding that I really wanted to do. What was weird was that I went out to L.A. with my writing partner Jess Braven, now the uh, Supreme Court reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and we were going to like be part of that whole Harvard to Hollywood pipeline and we yeah. ended up sell screenplays and become rich and that didn't work out instead i went to work in a theater in la and Which one? it was called the los angeles theater center and it only exists now as a building the building is still there the theater company collapsed under its own mismanagement decades ago Shocking. i know but while i was there i got this wonderful sort of grad level course in new playwriting because they did a lot of new plays so i met a lot of writers and got to know them people like uh, tony kushner probably most famously paula vogel donald margulies uh, marlena meyer a lot of other writers Unbelievable. i know it was really cool i mean i mean it was a terrible theater but we did a lot of interesting plays by interesting writers and terrible plays by interesting writers. And uh, I was like, oh, wow. And I was both inspired by the really good ones. Like, this is amazing to be able to do something like that and also encouraged by the terrible ones. Like, I could do better than this. Yes. So yes, I, totally. I, exactly. So like, this clown can get produced. So I started writing I my, write I started writing my own plays uh, and, and actually did that for almost a decade. I, was, I made my living as a playwright. Not a great living, but I did it. Yeah, but you've been, you've had to, Terrific. I mean, it looks like terrific grants from. Jordan yeah, I got grants. I got a, a, a few awards. Exactly. Yeah, you. Yeah, again, I've got. I got commissions. I mean, I did okay. The theater is a is an unforgiving mistress. Uh, is that sexist? Can I say that? The theater is a harsh mistress. Is the phrase I was looking for. And I did it, but I was scraping a living together and getting some accolades. I got you know a, I got a screenwriting contract on the basis of one of my plays, and that that became. Uh, Dirty Dancing 2. Okay, which so is, what was the original title? Because I know it became the original it. title was Cuba Mine. Okay. And somewhere in my files, I still have that screenplay. And it's not bad. It's certainly not as terrible as Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights. I will promise you that. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole story, which I can tell. But basically, I was commissioned to write a story based on a real-life person who had been in Havana at the time. And she was a young woman. And so the centerpiece of the story was a relationship, a love story between her and this guy who turned out to be a revolutionary. And that is almost still there in yeah. the version they finally made. Although one of the things they decided to do was sort of make him not a revolutionary because they thought that was too morally culpable for Diego Luna. It got totally whitewashed. Although weirdly, it got so whitewashed, like totally stripped of all political interest, meaning reality, that apparently Diego Luna himself, I wasn't there, I had long been fired, was on the set and was like, guys, this is about the Cuban revolution. We got to include something about like the Cuban revolution, don't we? So apparently they put stuff back in. At oh, his wow. insistence. So it was weird. It was like one of those things where they, they process fast food so much it becomes absolutely flavorless. Yes. So they have to like put back things that they took out earlier in the process. What was the firing right? I, I have one friend who, who didn't know he was fired. He's a, a screenwriter. But ran into an executive at the drugstore who said, I didn't see you at the meeting yesterday. Yeah, that, 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 basically that's how it works. They, they, I mean, the way it works is basically writers in Hollywood are treated the way you would treat a plumber. 
And if you well, plumbers ha- make a good living, well, writers do too, and 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 for the most part, uh, you can certainly the guild minimums are, are are healthy. And the best part about being a professional writer in Hollywood is the health insurance. Like what I got paid yeah. for writing this was not so much money, but my daughter. Dirty Dancing Havana Nights paid for my daughter. That's so nice. I got a bill from the hospital. There have been complications. You know, fifty thousand dollars insurance covers fifty thousand dollars. So yeah. thank you, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. But the way it works is is like so if you have like a contractor and he's you're, he's working in your apartment or your house if you don't live in New York City, and you decide you do not like this contractor's work, you don't call the contractor in for a meeting and say, Phil, you know, I appreciate the stuff you've done in renovating my bathroom, but I just feel that I need to go in a different direction. No, you just, you pay the guy off and you let him leave and then you hire somebody else. That's how they think of writers, at least in those days, and under that system in Hollywood. So no, I never got the phone call. In fact, I didn't know that my script had been taken off the shelf, massively rewritten, and was about to be made until the development exec, who had been friendly to me and had been working with me, called me up to tell me. Wow. Like, and she just did it because she thought I'd be amused, and she was correct. <laughs> to this day, though, I occasionally get a check for like $30. Oh, my God, that's so wonderful. $30 minus projections. So I get like a check for like fifteen sixty. It's from, like you have a podcast without having to do a podcast. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. yeah. I hope to one day be that screenwriter. Who's getting the thirty dollars checks and those guildmen? You know. Yeah, I have. I, I do have a check from the from the writers guild for seventy eight cents on my bulletin board. That's amazing. I know. I don't. I didn't want to cash it. I just want to look at it. No, That's I my career in Hollywood, that. right there. Yes. Yes. So, how did you end up in Chicago? From was New York not cold I, for you? I love New York. Although New York, New York, like it does to a lot of ambitious young men, made me crazy because I was like, "Am I doing enough? Am I at the right party?" So I was definitely anxious all the time, but in a good way, I think. But I was married at the time to a woman who had only moved to New York under protest. Uh, she is from the Midwest. And my feeling about New York is you, you just have to really want to live here. Absolutely. Because the daily friction of living in New York City, yeah. from everything from getting groceries to getting your kid into a school to Lord knows having a car, all that stuff is so aggravating that you got to love it. It's totally worth it because I'm in New York, you know? It's so funny. So like when I'm in LA, people are so unstressed out. Yeah. And it's I a little become weird. extremely stressed. Yeah. And here, because people are so stressed out, I'm very sad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, like I'm like, they've got it covered. Yes. <laughs> Everybody else Angeles, is stressed out. I'm like, it. I've got to be on and, call for all these people. And the and my ex-wife uh, refu- only moved here to be with me under protest. But the, the condition was, and this sounds like a fairy tale, we, should live in, we will live in New York until the first birthday of our first child. That was the deal. Because she really didn't want to raise children in New York. Wow. And I was able to convince her that for the first year of a child's life, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You can put them in a drawer. They don't know where they are. And our first daughter, who's now almost 21, was born in January of 1998. So the clock started ticking. Where were we going to go? And we couldn't figure it out because we can move to the suburbs. But I grew up in the New Jersey suburbs, and I did not want to go back to the suburbs. She wanted to move back to Minneapolis. I did not like Minneapolis. And we really, I don't know how we would have resolved it. We probably couldn't have resolved it. And maybe our marriage would have ended then. But instead, one day I got a phone call. I had been auditioning for and then had been hired to be a panelist on this brand new quiz show on NPR called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The show wasn't doing well. And so very quickly, they decided to make like what I call it as a battlefield promotion because they just didn't have any more time. The show was on the air, not doing well. So in late January of 1998, just weeks after the show had gone on the air, I have an infant, the clock is ticking. I get a phone call from the then producers like, would you consider being the host? And in order to be the host, I'd have to move to Chicago, 
which was a big city, not a suburb, but much closer to Minneapolis, where my then wife's family was from. So it seemed like a gift from the gods. Yeah. So we decided to do that. I moved out there on a trial basis, and then we moved permanently. Did you enjoy the show from the beginning? I mean, here you are, an actor and a playwright. This is what I, I remember saying to my agent about it prior to my getting the call. I said to him, this radio show thing, it's great. I'll tell you why it's great. Because in the theater, even Hollywood, there's so much time spent waiting, right? Like if you write a play, which takes X number of months or maybe more, you submit it to a theater and then they take X number of months to get back to you. And then when they get back to you, maybe if you're lucky, they'll say, oh, we're really interested in this play. We've scheduled it for a workshop in the spring. And okay, you get to the spring and you do a workshop and they say, that was great. Well, maybe, and it's like, so, you know, years go by. And I said, this is great because every week we do a radio show. And if it sucks, we just do another one the next week. And God heard uh, and granted me this job. And so then and now, it is pretty exciting to be able to do a whole new thing once a week. And it's, there's nothing like regular work. And collaborate. So it's a little bit like the theater, I imagine. It, no, it is not unlike the theater, well. although it took a while for the, to get there because in this first year, seven years, which sounds insane now that I think of it, but I was there, I lived it. Wait, wait was... Especially when you're 21, it's hard. I know, it was very tough. It was very hard, you know. It's like I was, both, I was both learning to shave regularly and do a radio show. It was tough. The problem was that we did the show in a studio where not only did we not have an audience, we didn't have panelists in the room. We could just hear each other. And it was designed that way for a number of reasons that seemed smart at the time. So we're doing a comedy show with no one to laugh at us. Yes, I know. NPR, not, you know... Not good at comedy. And, and there's reasons for that that have to do with Doug Berman's experience doing car talk, etc. But nonetheless, when we finally started doing it in front of a live audience, first on special occasions and then regularly in 2005, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this I know how to do. I knew how to stand in front of an audience and do material for an audience in front of an audience and felt much more at home. And I think the show's success really started then. So when you were a panelist, you were essentially calling in? Yeah, I was sitting in a studio, the NPR studio in New York, which at the time was on 2nd Avenue. And I was just sitting there in, literally in a booth with a engineer looking at me, trying to mime the answers for me, which was nice of her. It was very hilarious. She I was like that. trying to mime things like, you know, taxes. It's tough. And that's how you got hired. I got hired to be a panelist through sort of a phone-in audition process through the course of 2017. But then I got hired to be the host. I, apparently I, I was, I mean, it was weird because the original host just wasn't hosting. He wasn't like reacting to people. I totally. Most stand-ups hate, you know, being a host. And you have, I'm sure you have panelists who would not be a good host. No, that, I mean, we, in fact, we know because we've tried them. And, and, and that, that's sort of a different thing. The, the problem with the original host was that he just wasn't, although he had been a comedian and part of a comedy troupe and a public radio guy, he just wasn't good at hosting. I don't know exactly what his it problem was. It is a was. skill. Things would happen and they would go by unnoticed, except for me. And I would say, What? And I think that's why I ultimately got the job. But yeah, it is true that one of the things I had to learn about going from being a panelist to a host, and it took me a while, is that my job, once I became the host, was not to be funny, but to make funny happen. Not necessarily me. And it took me a while to figure that out, that if I feed something to, say, Paula Poundstone, and she knocks it out of the park, she gets the laugh, but it actually it redounds to my credit as well. Yes. So that, that it was hard for someone who was like, you know, very insecure and constantly needed people to be laughing at everything I said. So I felt like people liked me. That was kind of hard for me to realize. I think you're inherently funny. I sometimes feel like when people only treat humor as a pathology and a coping me mechanism. Yeah. 
it would be great if every, <laughs> everyone had that coping mechanism. Wait then. a minute. You mean it's something else? <laughs> it's more than a pathology and a coping mechanism? Because it's, it's, it's a paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson. It's worked for me. <laughs> yes, but I think it's not that it isn't that. It's that it's also a talent and skill. All right. I will Does grant that you that. Sense? Yes. No, it is absolutely. And, and I, I recognize that mostly in other people. Paula is actually one of the most skilled sort of technically talented comedians. And one of the reasons that it's so much fun to note it is because she disguises it so well. Yes. In kind of a very conversational, natural style. She never seems to be telling a joke. She never seems to be doing a bit, right? I mean, like, one of the weird things about stand-up is a guy or a woman is standing in front of you. A human. A human. Is it... I am told... Only because my dog refuses. No, I am told that it is not okay to refer to groups of women as guys, but I do it all the time. I also just prefer you not use words like people or... It's very confusing. Yeah, okay. Well, when people stand up to do stand-up, there's this weird kind of assumed understanding. It's like, here I am standing in front of you, and we're going to have a conversation as if it's just a natural thing for me to do. So he'll say, you know, I was going to the airport this morning. He's like, all right, he's doing a bit, right? Or have you ever noticed? Well, Paula doesn't do that. Paula's like, ah, oh, you know. The thing, Paula comes out on stage and she kind of rubs her head and she goes, um, oh, you know, I was getting ready to come here and oh, my kids. And you think she's just telling you it's like story that happened before she actually came to. No, this, that's her routine. It's 45 minutes later and you realize, oh, this is the routine. And so you think she's just chatting with you, but it's incredibly carefully crafted what she does. And it's a real technical skill. She also has an amazing ability to do callbacks, to pick up something, to understand that's what's funny, to bring you back to it, to do variations on it. It's amazing. And you have a bunch of writers on the show. We do. Not a bunch, but we have a number who are all very talented and How many? Well, at any given time, we have we sort of have a production staff that doubles as our editorial staff, as our writing staff. It's a little so, bit like a television show, right? Uh, well, I, I, I think, I mean, well, a lot of writers on TV, to my knowledge, are called producers in the credits, um, which is a nice thing for them. But in our show, it's, it's actually a little bit like there's, with one exception, and that is Peter Gwynn, who's a veteran of New York scene, and he wrote for Colbert for a long time. Uh, with one exception, we have nobody on our show who is just a writer. Uh, everybody else, including myself, has other things we're supposed to be doing. So they're supposed to be booking guests or creating bits or editing the show or doing whatever. But we all sort of contribute to the writing. Um, we're always, uh, you know, sort of researching stuff and coming up with ideas and pitching ideas and writing jokes and rewriting jokes and punching jokes. And are any of the panelists involved in that as well? No. Okay. And the reason for that is because one of the things we learned early on is that what allows us to stand out in the crowded space of the satirical industrial complex is that we can be and genuinely are improvisational. Take John Oliver, who's a great example of this because he does it so well. Oh, he's an interesting guy. He's British. And uh, looks a lot like Steve Mnuchin. And he, that's his gag, not mine. But what you see when you watch John Oliver is you see like a really carefully polished bit of produced comedy where the writing is polished to an inch of its life, where it's matched with graphics or, or moving into elaborate bits. And that's amazing. They're really, really good at it. And, and we just don't have the firepower to compete. But even more so, we provide a very different experience for our audience, which is that our audience genuinely believes that they're participating in something that's unplanned, improvisational, real, and happening in the moment. And that's because it genuinely is. The panelists don't know what we're going to talk to them about. I don't know what they're going to say. A lot of time, my reactions to them are completely improvisational in the moment, and that comes across. Now, public radio listeners are not known for having a sense of humor. 
And your show is so that, that funny. Is, that is a stereotype, and it's entirely true. I grew up in D.C., and I'll go and perform and you know, the improv or anything. Yeah. Like, you know, I, and I love being back in those clubs on those times. But I just did my show, Employee of the Month at the Kennedy Center, and I was really nervous because it's so stuffy. They're a pretty stuffy group, although... Even though I politically am probably aligned with 99.9% of them. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the, the thing about public radio is like any given topic, there's somebody who's going to find is not funny. So we don't get this as much as we used to because I think people just understand we're just going to be mean to everybody. But for a long time, we got lots of letters saying, and they always started the same way. Uh, Dear Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I really love your show, and normally I find it very funny, i.e., I have a sense of humor. Don't tell me I don't have a sense of humor. Then, but this week you made a joke about X, or whatever it may be, uh, Catholicism, Judaism, um, Islam, handicapped people, uh, short people, tall people, white people, black people. Eyebrow people. Eyebrow people. The best one one was like a thousand-word essay on email form complaining that we made a joke about goths. Amazing. Which I thought was impressive. And of course, they always end, you owe the goth community in this case, an apology, and I'll be waiting for it. And Do you want to give it right now? No. I, goths, you're silly. You're dressing up. You're pretending you're already dead. It's not good. Don't do it. No, I take that, but the best one was we were interviewing Tom Hanks the first time he was on our show way back in 2005. I hear he's really difficult to work he's with. He's impossible. My God, he demands things like food. So he was talking on our show about how much he loved games growing up, and he and his brothers and siblings used to play games, and they were very, very competitive, and they used to, like, trash talk each other, like things, things like, hey, you drooly head. And we got a letter, an email, complaining about the phrase drooly head, saying it was, it stigmatized people with drool problems, you know, like people who might be drooling. And I, I think I, I, this is when I wrote back to those people. I no longer do. I'm like, eh, I'm doing this too long. Deal with it. But I said, if you can't, like, if you can no longer say things like a drooly head, that will be the end of comedy in America. Yeah. So I'm sorry, but we're going to make fun of drooly yeah, heads. I, I feel very strongly as someone who's been through a lot in a short life uh, that without comedy, I don't think there's yeah. a point. But, but you asked about public radio audiences. All I can tell you is, so NPR, not known for its contributions to American comedy. And I say this as one of your devoted listeners. (laughs) And and so when we started out, you know, nobody knew how to do comedy on or for public radio. Certainly we didn't. And our executive producer, Doug Berman, had produced Car Talk, the most successful comedy show on public radio. But he, you know, I don't think we could do that. We weren't going to like talk about cars in a Boston accent. So we decided to stop worrying about it and just do stuff we thought was funny and just make ourselves laugh especially because we didn't have an audience. We had to make ourselves laugh. There was nobody else. And it turns out that more people than we thought shared our sense of humor. Yeah. And, that's, and that's it. That's the secret to our success. We just do what we think is funny and people like it. It is exceptional that you are so good at doing your show live and as a listener that one can, I can feel a part of it. Yeah, I can well, feel that, like I'm there even though I'm not. When, uh, to be serious for a second, the reason that our show was in a studio to begin with, was a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a lot easier to edit, and Doug Berman, again, really believes in editing. But he also felt, not without reason, that if you do a radio show in front of a live audience, you are going to neglect the, at that point, hypothetical radio audience in favor of the very much real, live, visible audience in front of you to the radio audience's detriment. And... That certainly happens. It happens on other shows where you have the sense as a listener at home that there's something interesting going on in that room, but you can't see it and you're not a part of it. And therefore you feel excluded and you turn it off. So that's a danger. But one of the things we worked on 
and I personally thought about a lot and I used as my model in this Garrison Keeler, who was actually very good at this is to invite the live audience to be a part of the show so that you are inviting the listening audience to be part of the live show. And you know, there are certain things you don't do. You don't do visual humor. One of the things you don't do is you don't interact with the live audience very much. Because that's an immediately exclusive. If you say, you, "You sir, out there, what, what are you? Why are you? Why are you waving your hands or whatever?" Then all of a sudden, the listening audience goes, "What's going on? I don't know what's going on." So we do the, We have those rules, but basically, the whole purpose of the show is to, as you say, invite the listening audience into sort of what is genuinely a very good time in the room we happen to be in. Do you ever get burnt out? You've been doing this for twenty years plus. Uh, I, I, I have. I have gone through periods of like, oh my god, we're doing this again. Especially during those sort of slow early years in the, in the Obama administration, where they just refused to be unusual. But I've gotten a little bit older, and I've gotten more appreciative of uh, this very good gig. But uh, also, I don't know if you were aware of this, but Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And people say, well, that must be great. That must give you a lot of material. I don't think so. No, it's not great. It's terrifying. The, 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 the challenges it poses for people in our line of work are greater than the opportunities it gives us because we're, we're constantly trying to figure out which of the astonishingly insane things we can talk about and how to talk about whichever astonishingly insane thing we choose to talk about, how we can talk about that in a way we haven't spoken about it in the past. You want to write the punchline. Right. And when the punchline becomes the premise. Right. Exactly. That's one way of putting it. Uh, Samantha B had the best line about this early on in the. I thought in, mine was pretty good, but go yours, on. Yours, well, it was fine. I mean, I'm not saying it was bad. You are a comic, aren't you? Because you went there right there. You're like, damn it. He's going to top me with somebody else, and it's not even his own joke. He's going to cite somebody else who's not even. He already has a show. She already has Guild Health Insurance. She doesn't I mean, need to go he to doesn't therapy. Have, but anyway, she said in a line that arguably was better than yours. She said, everybody says it must be so great. The jokes write themselves. No, the jokes aren't supposed to write themselves. The Jews are supposed to write the jokes, and the Jews are scared. <laughs> I, it is hilarious. As a Jew, I feel that's very funny. It is, yes. It's very, you're, making the, you're making the Jewish laughing face, which is like, uh, it's funny. I'm in pain. I'm in pain, and yet I appreciate the irony of my misery. That's how we do. I, I really want to talk about your book. Thank you. So your book is called The Incomplete... Book of Running, yes. and it's um, Simon and Schuster's. Your publisher, it is. Yes, yeah, Simon and Schuster. You know, Simon and Schuster. Is it a Thorndike book? I thought it was a Simon and Schuster book. I have okay. it here. I can look. The Incomplete Book of Running, Simon yeah. and Schuster. Yes. And what I wanted to ask because so I first heard you tell a story for the Moth, and it was a be- beautiful and painful story. Thank you. And so I wasn't surprised when you wrote this wonderful book. Yes. Was that story, and you can tell our listeners um, what it is. I don't want to, you know, crib it. Yes, that story, it's interesting. Let me let me sort of go back and I'll give you the timeline briefly. So uh, I've been a serious runner since oh, more than a decade now and I started running for Runner's a World. seriously funny runner. Thank you. And I started writing for Runner's World and then uh, around the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, I said, oh, maybe I'll write a book about running and I managed to convince Simon & Schuster to pay me to do it and that was great. And then... I endured two explosions. The first was of my marriage, and because my family and my marriage blew up, I needed ways to get out of the house. And so I accepted an invitation to run the Boston Marathon, which I did as a guide for a blind runner. And we crossed the line right before the bombs blew up. This was 2013. And I hadn't been, because of the first explosion, in very much of a mood to write a breezy book about anything, let alone running. And 
I ended up telling the story of the Boston Marathon, how I came to be there, what happened that day at the Moth, as you say. And I told that story in 2014. In New York. In New York, not, not far from here at Cooper Union. Ran by it today. I, in fact, I had a great Cooper Union-specific joke that nobody got. Because Abraham Lincoln famously delivered his house divided speech in that building wow and i said in addition to a house divided in addition to the fact that it cannot stand it's really no fun to live in one this is why you were hired to uh, host an entire show about the constitution exactly right um abstruse references to american history anyway that story was well received by a lot of people and so that became the first chapter of my book so the first chapter of my book is an elaboration of that story how i came to be running boston in 2013 what happened then and then the rest of the book takes me through the what was probably the worst year of my life 2013 to 2014 and ends with my returning to the boston marathon in 2014 Um, and then other happy things happen it's not entirely a downer well you remarried i did remarry quite happily one of the many Parts of your book that I loved is, you know, there's the certainty of uncertainty. Yes. And when you get to middle age, or sadly for other people, some of them stop being deluded earlier. And Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to hear that for for those folks. But but once you face that, (laughs) the certainty of uncertainty, I have found that exercise and moving has been the most helpful. Yes. Way well, for me to deal. It is. And, and I have become, in the course of writing the book, and even more so in the course of speaking about it, really an evangelist for this, uh, the idea of getting outside and moving, which in 2018 America is a revolutionary thing to do because we spend most of our time sitting in chairs staring at screens, different screens, of course, depending on the time of day. And then there are many people who exercise because going to the gym is important and we're all have subjected to horrible, unrealistic body images that we try and fail to meet. But even then, what are people doing? Well, they're buying Peloton machines or they're signing up for SoulCycle or they're, uh, or they're you know... What are Peloton machines? You know what, you know what a Peloton no. machine is, is, is a way of, uh, of basically selling you your own SoulCycle class. So instead of going to a SoulCycle studio, have you ever done that? I have. It's a little culty, but it's a good workout. So instead of like, I'm obviously not doing it correctly. No, you don't like it. Get, no, I didn't get a workout. You didn't get a workout. No. Oh, really? Clearly not. Doing oh. Well, anyway, what, what a Peloton machine is is it's a, it's an extra, it's a, it's a sort of trademark specific custom exercise bike that has a Wi-Fi connection. So you sit on the bike and you either call up a a saved workout on demand, or you can join a live class broadcast from their studios here in New York City. Hmm. So you call up on your screen, and there is a very fit, enthusiastic young man or woman. You're interested. No, a guy I was being interviewed by on PBS was telling me about it. And he says that when you're doing it, they, in their studio in New York City, he's in his suburban house in New Jersey, in his basement, they can see you. So they'll shout at you under your screen name. So his name was like Jersey Mike. It's like, hey, Jersey Mike, pick it up. And all I could think of is like, that's what George Orwell describes as the telescreen. Remember Winston Smith doing his exercises in front of the telescreen and the voice says, Winston Smith, come on, touch those toes. I'm like, that's, I don't think Orwell ever imagined we do all this shit voluntarily. But the the thing I find ironic, right, is I said running helps me with deal with the certainty of uncertainty and, you know, time and that there's, I don't have enough of it. And the irony that I find with that is that if you're a long-distance runner like yourself, yeah. you are fixated on time. Well, you are and you aren't. To finish the point about all that other stuff, all that's great, and exercising in any form is better than sitting around and being sedentary. That goes without saying. But I honestly think there's a value in leaving all that behind, the machines, the classes, the subscriptions, the equipment, and just going outside and running. And turning off the public radio. Turning off public radio, turning off everything. I'm actually an advocate for leaving your headphones behind because of the whole thing with the screens I mentioned. 
we never allow ourselves to think our thoughts. The other dystopian prediction that came true in a funny way, Kurt Vonnegut's talking about Kurt Vonnegut here. Do you know his short story, Harrison Bergeron? No. Okay. So this is a short story he wrote. It's in Welcome to the Monkey House, and it's about this dystopian future where some totalitarian communist-style government has decided that everybody should be equal, and they mean it. So everybody who has any natural advantage is handicapped to take that away. So if they're very strong, they have to carry on weights all day to keep them down in the ground. If they're very fast, their legs get chained together. And if they're very smart, as is the title character, Harrison Bergeron, they have to wear these headphones that blast their ears with random sounds every 40 to 80 seconds, preventing them from ever putting together two coherent thoughts. And I'm amazed that Vonnegut's sort of dystopian vision has come true, except we're all doing it voluntarily. Like nobody just lets themselves think anymore. They yeah. don't even, I mean, they're, they're even terrified of it. One guy wrote to me after the New York Times published an excerpt saying, oh yeah, I understand what you mean, but my thoughts and I don't get along. Well, and, and that's how mindfulness uh, and meditation is often taught these days as yeah. well. And I think that there's a confusion there of understanding that that thoughts and emotions <laughs> yeah. come and go. Yes. And that they're not fixed in the way that, you know, not what you have an emotion one minute and yeah. not that right. or you want bratwurst one second and then you want, you know, pizza the next. But <sighs> but the challenge there that makes me very nervous. Can you want them both at the same time? Because you, you know what would be great? A bratwurst pizza. It's worrisome. Yes. <laughs> not not that mindfulness is taught that way or meditation is taught that way. I think it, it's very helpful. But what's worrisome is that simultaneously you have you know Apple and Facebook pretending that they're helping you right. when really they're just making work so that those people can keep their jobs that are actually not helping you right. and actually harming you. Yes, that's true. I, I think that people are afraid of being without input because they're afraid of being bored. What they think of is if I don't have anything in my ears or in my eyes right now, I'll have nothing and nothing is boring. So I don't want nothing, I'll take something. What they don't understand is if you put aside the headphones and the screens, you don't have nothing, especially if you go outside and run, you have the whole world. Like I ran from just this morning, not to brag, from Columbus Circle to here, the Lower East Side. It's insane. It's only three miles, it's not that far. Manhattan is tiny. At least lower Manhattan is very small. I didn't have headphones in. For one thing, I probably would have been killed had I not been able to hear the trucks coming up behind me. But also, there's so much to see and to pay attention to. Just the people, the stores, the the changing cityscape. You know, I passed the Flatiron building and noted it was under construction and remembered it would recently been sold and it's going to be changed into incredibly expensive apartments. And there are all these things going on in the world. And of course, I'm running through the densest, busiest city in the world. That's also true anywhere you might be. It's true in a suburb. It's Lord knows it's true in the country, in rural areas. Pay attention and you won't be bored. And, and what you'll find is, is that interacting with the world, even in this most basic way, running through it, is really rewarding. There's a whole world out there. Why are we sitting inside staring at our screens? He said, like a dad. <laughs> um, so it obviously helps you with burnout, it sounds like, running. Yeah, it helps me with everything. It's gotten to the point where if I can't run for more than two days in a row, I start to go slowly insane. I mean, I really need it. I need to get out. I need to run. I need to feel it physically and mentally. Otherwise, I'll start losing it. And aspiration-wise, you've written plays, you've written films and television shows. I'm curious, you know, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me almost became a TV show. It seems like... Twice. Yeah. Yeah, there was an attempt to do a pilot for uh, CBS. In fact, years later, I met Les Moonves. I said, Les, I said, nice to meet you. You know, I did a pilot for CBS. He said, you did? I said, yeah. In 2008, we did a pilot of our, my radio show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me didn't go anywhere. He said, well, it must have been pretty bad because it never even got to me. 
And then we also did a version for BBC America. It was fun, and we actually got on the air, but apparently this is how it works these days in TV. If it doesn't attract the audience they want, they go, oh, well, thanks anyway. I know, but it's such a sham because, A, having done the show for almost 10 years and interviewing almost 1,000 people who are phenomenally successful yeah. in, you know, in the way that we stereotypically define it, both for, for here and in public, other publications, is you have to have time. Yeah. I mean, none of what we consider Seinfeld's Right. The Seinfeld know, it, is the most famous story. Yeah. Like, Seinfeld sucked, and they said, no, no, wait. Let it develop, let it find its audience, and next thing you know. And, you know, we're kind of a case in point because our show started on national air and we didn't have a chance to have like a private adolescence, like, say, Car Talk did or Fresh Air did or other shows did. You had to have your zits in public and And it was pretty awkward. Yeah. And it wasn't going well. And as I said, we came pretty close to not making it. But uh, Doug Berman used his reputation to buy us some time and we did okay. Well, I'm so glad you made it. I need to let you go. I know because you have two sold out shows. I have two sold out. I have to write jokes for them, sadly. I'm meeting my colleagues in an hour and I have to present them with jokes that I haven't yet written. Well, thank you for being on Employee thank you. of the Month. Oh, it's my favorite. Do I get a plaque? Yeah, you are actually going to get Really? I'm so excited. <laughs> I just didn't want you to have to carry it because I didn't know how much. No, no, I've got, I'm checking a bag, so it's okay, all right. Good. But no, I'm very excited. I'm, I, I, I will put it on the wall with pride. Thank you so much, My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Peter Sagal. I want to thank Dana Bialik. I want to do a shout out to Mo Rocca, who actually introduced me to Peter. And I highly recommend you listen to our episode on Employee of the Month if you go back into the archives. And I want to thank you. I'm Katie Lazarus. If you are in Utah, if you know anyone who's going to be in Utah, if you know anyone who's going to be near Utah, tell them to come see Employee of the Month live. We're doing a live recording January 25th at Sundance Film Festival. And otherwise, we'll be here every week. Talk to you soon. I'm Katie Lazarus. <laughs>